with me out of respect for the Word and turn today to Psalm 32. I'm going to take a brief break from 1 Corinthians, Psalm 32, and let's see what the Lord has for us this morning. Here is the infallible, inspired, inerrant Word of God. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity. I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found surely in a flood of great waters. They will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble and you surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose trappings are bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Let's ask God to help us understand. Almighty and everlasting God, increase in us the gifts of faith, hope, and charity, and that we may obtain what you promise, make us love what you command, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen? You may be seated. Several years ago in a gym that I used to uh, work out at, uh, some of the trainers got really excited about some new supplement. And it was the new Wonder Supplement. They got so excited about it, but before long, they had almost the entire gym buying their new Wonder Supplement. If you heard the stories about uh, this product, you could understand why. So many of the people who took this supplement reported great gains in strength and muscle mass. Others reported dramatic weight loss. And another guy even claimed that it cured his asthma. In fact, one guy's wife said that it helped her break her caramel macchiato habit. You see, it was a product that seemed to deliver what it advertised. And that's the best form of product endorsement. Uh, when a person has actually tried it and it worked for them. How about diminishing the spiritual weight and significance of what David has to say here in this passage this morning? In a sense, David is saying to the saints, I tried it and it worked. I tried it 
and it worked. And, and to unfold that theme or idea this morning, you can see here that David sets up two sets of contrasts. You have the contrast of hiding sin and confessing sin. And then you have the profound experience set forth in the contrast between experiencing misery and pain and the experience of joy and beatitude. And that's what we're going to look at this morning without holding you in any kind of suspense here. What David is arguing in Psalm 32 is that hiding sin leads to grief and pain and sorrow and misery. And confessing sin honestly and transparently and openly before the Lord leads to this wonderful uh, experience that David so exuberantly speaks about in verses 1 and 2, the blessedness of forgiveness, the blessedness of imputation, and the blessedness of having a spirit in which there is no deceit. I want us to examine this passage this morning and understand the connection here that David makes then between confessing sin and enjoying God's grace. And notice here, as we begin to open up the psalm, that David contrasts two different experiences. First of all, he begins with the experience of the assurance of justification. He says, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. We get a sense of what forgiveness is all about by the second uh, parallel sentence there, or clause in verse 1, whose sin is covered. Uh, That verb covered is the same one that is used of the cloud uh, that covered the mercy seat before the priest as they went into uh, the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies. And God instructed them to take uh, incense with them that would create this aromatic cloud so that as they walked into that Holy of Holies, they would not be consumed by uh, the transcendent holiness of God's being. Uh, It's the same word that is used of protection of Israel as the cloud would come upon them in the desert journeys. And so we get a sense of of this idea of forgiveness from the word, the sin is covered from the sight of God in a sense. It means that God won't remember it. We just sung about it in Psalm 103 this morning. That God has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west, never to remember them anymore. We have another Old Testament passage that talks about God uh, casting all of our sins into a sea of forgetfulness. You see, it's God's action to remove our sin from us and to not remember it and to not punish it. That's what David is celebrating here. Forgiveness. He also celebrates imputation. If you see that in verse 2, he said, How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Turn with me to Romans chapter 4, and you'll see the apostle take up this very phrase from David here in Psalm 32 and expound it as he is unfolding the concept of justification by faith alone. Romans chapter 4. Now, you can see the connection between the passages really easily in verse 6. You know that Paul is dealing with Psalm 32 because he says, Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness. 
Uh, but back up in the context and see the flow of thought here. In verse 4, as Paul explains what justification by faith alone means, uh, he compares it to uh, the world of commerce or of business. He says, now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor for what is due. He says, if you punch a, a card, a time card at work, You get paid, not because the owner is being gracious to you, but because there is a relationship between the time you spend working and the amount of salary or wage that you are to secure from that. There is an exchange, in other words. I exchange my labor for a salary. Now Paul goes on in verse 5 to say, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the godly, the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. He said salvation or justification by faith alone is not like what you experience when you punch a time card when you go to work. He says it's just the opposite. He says the one who doesn't work, the one who doesn't attempt to secure divine favor and blessing upon their life through obedience, but the one who simply believes in God and rests securely in His promises, and trusts in God's grace to save them apart from His works, Paul says, to that one, righteousness is imputed. There's that wonderful doctrinal term, which is at the core of our doctrine of justification. Imputation. God takes something and credits it to my account. It's not as if I've earned it. It's not as if I've performed it. But God takes the righteousness of Jesus Christ, all of His obedience to God's commands, and puts them right on my account and sees me as if I have done all of that righteousness. Now the wonder of all of that is explained here in what Paul says in verse 5 to the one who does not work but believes. He's the one who God credits that Obedience, which results in our justification. Now, what uh, Paul says here is he looks at that, he says, you know what, that's not a new idea. That's as old as the Old Testament. That's as old as Psalm 32. He says, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Now, if you look at Psalm 32 too, uh, David doesn't say that God credits righteousness. He says he doesn't impute sin to us, right? Because you can see Paul quoting that there. But it's the same thing, Paul explains. To not have sin imputed to us also involves having righteousness imputed to us. Well, what all this means, what David is rejoicing is, in here is that he is uh, rejoicing in the fact of justification by faith alone. We have both parts of the doctrine of justification here. We have uh, the first part, which is about the forgiveness of all of our sins and its guilt through the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have the second part of justification, which is the righteousness of Jesus stamped to my account. And it's all by grace. Now here, David is rejoicing in that, and and he rejoices in that in sort of a poetic fashion. Back to Psalm 32, in verse 6, he says, Let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time you may be found, and surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You see, now he is is, uh, 
poetically uh, speaking about the joy and the assurance of justification that even if we're in the midst of great, turbulent, deadly waters, he says, this flood of waters will not reach him. That's obviously a metaphor for life's trials and struggles and pitfalls and temptations, even in the midst of all those. God has determined to be gracious to the believer. And God will not allow those trials and temptations to overcome them fully and finally. That David also speaks about the joy of this assurance of justification. He says in verse 7, you are my hiding place. You see, David has connected that to this whole experience that he's had. And he understands it because he is justified by, by grace alone and not by his own obedience. He understands here and he explains here and he extols here and he sings about here the fact that God is his hiding place. See, what David does is he rejoices in the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That salvation is by God's grace through Christ based upon the obedience of Jesus Christ. David looked forward to Jesus' day, knew that the fulfillment of the gospel promises in the Old Testament were found in Christ. There's real joy in contemplating our justification. But see, uh, now in order to unfold uh, that idea a bit more to understand why David is, is rejoicing in that here, uh, you need to see the contrast, the contrasting experience in verses 3 and 4. Here he speaks about the pain of guilt. On the one hand, he had spoken about the joy of the assurance of justification, and now he, he, he uh, describes the experience of, of painful guilt. He says in verse 3, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as the fever heat of summer, David describes the painful effects of guilt upon the body in a physical way. He said his sins actually affected his health. He said, this is what I felt. I felt like my body was wasting away. That word there is the same word that Sarah uses in Genesis chapter 18 as she responds to the promise that as she's 90 years old, she is going to give birth to the child of promise. She says, how can this be when my body is old and wasting away? See, it's talking about being old. David said, I felt old. My bones creaked when I walked across the floor. My body ached and hurt. He says in verse 4 that it felt like the, the Lord's hand was, was upon him and it was, it was heavy. It felt like as he walked around his palace and as he, as he went out to the marketplace, as, as he lived his normal life, he felt like he was always walking with an anchor around his neck. He felt great weight upon his body. There was a physical dimension to the feeling of guilt. Then he goes on to say, my vitality was drained away. Uh, a very interesting phrase in the Hebrew here, because it's very difficult to translate it. 
probably the closest translation we can come up with in English is juice. David says, my juice as the fever heat of summer. It's not even a complete thought in the Hebrew, but I think the New American Standard draws it out well when it says, my vitality was drained away as the fever heat of summer. In other words, what David is saying, I felt like a person does who just been out on a 10-mile jog in 110 degree heat and had no water. So I just felt utterly exhausted from uh, the dehydration. My energy was taken away. So he explains with all of these terms the, the physical dimensions of feeling guilt. He also talks about the emotional impact, psychological impact of his experience of guilt. In verse 3 he says uh, he was groaning all day. The word is used in several different places in the Old Testament to describe lions roaring in the wilderness seeking after their prey and they're hungry. It's kind of like your uh, empty stomach sounds when you haven't eaten and you're famished. It's roaring. And David says that was his psychological experience. A state of emotional distress, of anguish, of Acute emotional pain. Now, those are the experiences he contrasts. On the one hand, you have here in verse 1 and 2, everything is wonderful in David's life. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord does not appear iniquity. Now, verse 3, when I kept silent, though my body wasted away, through my groaning all day long, your hand was heavy upon me. I felt miserable. So there are your two contrasting experiences. And now you can see, uh, as, you, as you work through the passage of connected dots, the experiences are based upon two contrasting actions. And the first uh, action here that is contrasted is uh, hiding. You, get, you, you see that uh, already in verse 3, the very uh, initial clause. When I kept silent, my body wasted. When I kept silent. Uh, It's causal. He says, when I caused myself. It wasn't just sort of a passive silence. It was a willful silence. He refused to confess his sin. You see that from another angle in verse 5 as he sort of turns this inside out. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. But again, what you see there is that David was hiding his sin. It was a willful silence about his sinfulness before God. And David says, all the time when I was doing that, when I was hiding my sins, when I was refusing to confess my sin to you, O God, he says, that's when I experienced the emotional and physical distress of guilt. He makes the connection there. A lack of confessing sin leads to the experience of verses 3 and 4. Now that's not the first time in the Psalms, or the only time in the Psalms you have uh, this connection between uh, failing to confess sin and to this experience of uh, physical and emotional pain due to guilt. Psalm 31.10 says, My strength has failed 
because of my iniquity and my body has wasted away. A particularly vivid description of this connection is found in Psalm 38 where the psalmist says, There is no health in my bones because of my sin. He's not talking about original sin. He's talking because of my unconfessed sin. He says, My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. My loins are filled with burning as there is no soundness in my flesh. I am benumbed and badly crushed. crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. That's the same thing that David is speaking of here in verse 3. He says, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. You can't miss it here this morning, people of God. You can't hide your sins. That's what David is saying. You cannot hide your sins from God. You cannot pretend that you close your eyes and they're not there. You cannot pretend that if you just say nothing, keep your mouth shut and your head down, somehow God won't notice. Wherever you go, he'll go. Wherever you go, God's awareness of them will go. Kind of like, um, and forgive me for trivializing this, kind of like that Geico commercial with the eyes. You seen that? The eyes just sitting there, and they're always watching, and they play the song, Somebody's Watching Me. That's sin. You can, you, like in the commercial, you, you can ignore it, pretend like it's not there, but the whole point of it is you, you can only pretend so long. You can only hide so long. You can't run away from the facts. You can't run away from the truth. What David is saying here is that uh, this experience of not confessing sin in the presence of a personal, holy, infinite, almighty, omniscient God is like eyes always watching you. You know, you can... You can pretend. And Christians do this all the time. They can pretend that the sin's not there. Or they can admit that it's there and just blame other people. It's really not my fault. It's extenuating circumstances. It's these people. It's, this, it's, it's the whole condition that I live in. It's my past. It's this. It's that. They can ignore it. They can hope that sin goes away or the memory of it goes away. And sometimes this also happens too with Christians. They end up fooling themselves, thinking that they really didn't sin. They end up eventually convincing themselves that they really have done nothing wrong. You see, they become pathological. Because it's the only way they can live with themselves. And I believe that's exactly what David had become. And this is why we have this exuberant expression of praise because David has finally got this enormous relief of conscience after deluding himself, hoping it went away, closing his eyes to it, pretending it wasn't there, blame shifting and all of those strategies when he found out none of them worked because eventually his sins just dragged him down. What does he do? Well, look at verse 5. You had the one experience of hiding. Now you have the experience of confessing. He says, I acknowledged my sin, my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. You see those three different terms there? They're all different. 
You see, the piling up of the terms explains to us, or indicates to us, that David made a complete confession. He just, he just spilled his guts. I acknowledged, I did not hide, I confessed. That's confessing sin. That's, that's dealing with sin properly. It, it's finally saying, yes, I, I violated the law. You know, if you don't do that, you're not confessing sin. You know, the, you, you, confessing sin is agreeing with the law. The law says, don't do this, don't do that, don't do the other thing. And if you did it, the law points out exactly what you did and says, you were wrong. Confessing sin is agreeing with the law. David did. He said, I finally acknowledged it. He did everything he could to to tamp the awareness of sin out of his consciousness. Finally, it didn't work anymore. David did exactly what he knew he had to do. Become open and honest before God. Just think about that a minute. If you have uh, not been following this practice of David, or rather maybe you were following the practice of what David was doing, hiding, pretending, blame-shifting, ignoring, I want you to look at what David says happened after he became honest and transparent. And confess sin. It's in the bottom part of verse 5. I hope your Bible is open so you can see this. He says, And you forgave the guilt. Isn't that interesting? He isolates the very thing that he had been wrestling with and attempting to suppress. He said it was guilt that you forgave. Now, isn't that the very thing that was, that was his problem? Guilt was what was dragging him down. Guilt was what was making his bones feel old and tired and creaky. Uh, guilt was what sh- was making him feel heavy, like God's hand was heavy upon him, like an anchor around his neck. Uh, guilt was the thing that was, was causing all of the emotional distress in his soul. It was guilt. That's how guilt makes you feel. But what David said is when he came to God, he said, I acknowledged, I confessed, and I did not hide. He found relief from his guilt. Well, you know, that product endorsement thing that we were talking about is right here in the psalm verse 6 now and that leads us to our third point we've contrasted experiences we've contrasted actions and now David says I tried it and it worked and because of my experience it becomes now a teacher to the church he says therefore Therefore, see, when we, when we find therefore in, in Paul's letters, we always stop and say, well, why, why is the therefore there? 
it's obviously a part of an argument. And, and the same thing is true here with the psalmist, with David. He's saying, uh, this is uh, my contrasting experience. These are my contrasting actions. And now he says, therefore, I want to teach. Let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Therefore, based upon my experiences, I want you to follow my godly example. Acknowledge. Confess. Don't hide. Verse 8, we see that instructing aspect of the message again. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way in which you should go. So what do we learn from all of this? Let's learn some lessons here because it's very practical for every Christian here. Uh, by the way, I think that um, we completely miss the, the, the entire point of the message this morning if you think this is a good message for your unbelieving neighbor. Okay, because uh, David here is a believer. David is not describing his salvation experience. David is already in the covenant. David is uh, God's anointed. David is thoroughly a believer in the Lord. So this is for you this morning if you're a Christian. It's also for an unbeliever because this is exactly the way an unbeliever comes to know God uh, unto salvation is is to confess sin and, and to know the joy of of gracious salvation, too. So it's good for believers and unbelievers, but this is primarily for believers here this morning, and this means it's for you. You need to listen to this this morning. I need to listen to this. This is what David says is how we are to deal with sin. The very first thing that you can draw out of this is that you have to confess sin honestly. I wonder if you saw this as you read it with me. David addresses the Lord personally. He said, I acknowledge my sin to you. He says, I confess my transgressions to the Lord. David understood something that is essential in understanding this whole concept of sin and why it's so terrible. God is a person. Okay? God is a person. God is not an abstract philosophical concept. God is not fate. God is not a power. God is not a force. God is not some uh, idolatrous concept of God that humans have somehow come up to explain all the mystery that science can't figure out in life. God is personal. And when you offend a person, you must acknowledge to the person that you have transgressed them. It's not an it that you hurt. Okay? He didn't hurt it. Abstract force X. Sin is what it is because it's against God. And David is very personal here in how he, he, uh, he speaks about what he did. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you. David owned his sin also. This is all part of the honesty part. We have three parts here. We have honesty. First, David's telling this is how you do it. You confess sins honestly. He owned his sin. Uh, Verse 5. Hope you saw all the personal pronouns there. He said this. I acknowledge my sin to you. And my iniquity I did not hide. And then he says, I will confess my transgression. See that? It wasn't 
Uh, my neighbor made me do it. It wasn't my boss made me do it. It wasn't my friend made me do it. It wasn't my circumstances made me do it. I did it, and I confessed my sin. That's an honest confession of sin. When you say, I did it, take ownership of it. And then he confessed particular sins particularly. I'm borrowing that line from the Westminster Confession because it's, it's, it's perfect in how it explains what confession is about. Confessing particular sins particularly. You say, where do you get that, Pastor Sotel? Well, I get it from the whole array of terms that he uses here to describe his sin. There's three different terms there in verse 5. He's speaking about his sins comprehensively and honestly and specifically. There, there are a range of sins, and, and David says, I, I confess my, my sins. And, and you have to understand this, people of God. You are not confessing your sin if you don't particularly confess your sin. I'm afraid that too many Christians pray for forgiveness like they pray for uh, God's blessing upon dinner. And that's the extent of confession in their life. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day. Dear Lord, we thank you for this food. Oh, and dear Lord, please forgive me for my sins. Amen. And that is the extent of how most Christians, I believe, and I hope I'm wrong, but I think that this is a far too often that this is how we deal with sins. Please forgive. It's never specific. And David said, no, 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 no. I got very specific. I owned my sin before God and I said it was against Him. And this is what I did. X, Y, and Z. If you're not doing that, you're not confessing sin. And if you're not doing that, you're not going to know the joy of forgiveness. So, sin has to be confessed Honestly, sin has to be confessed particularly, and sin has to be confessed perpetually. Perpetually. You see, uh, believers are to be the kind of people who get up in the morning, and they go to bed at night, and they own their sin to God. It's a strange thing that a believer would not do that. Because that is the key to having the assurance a salvation and assurance of grace and mercy because you come before God in all of your honesty with all of the ugliness of your sin. And God saw them all and say, Lord, I, I ask your forgiveness. I've done X, Y, and Z today. We ought to take a lesson from the greatest theologian in the history of the church, St. Augustine who had the words of Psalm 32, 1 and 2 inscribed upon his bed so that it would be the last thing he saw before he went to sleep and the first thing he saw when he woke up. That is dealing with sin in a biblical way. Honestly, particularly, and perpetually. If you want to know the joy of your salvation, you have to be a confessing Christian. There's a reason why too many of the lives of God's people are mired down in sort of a tasteless, odorless Christianity. It's because it's dishonest. There's no real dealing with sin specifically and perpetually 
before God. And the key to having that constant assurance and joy of justification and awareness of God's mercy is confessing honestly, particularly, and perpetually. Why don't we do it? If we know that there is this profound connection between confessing and experiencing the joy, why don't we do it? Why don't you? And I'm going to come up with two. One's from the text, and one's not. And the first one, I think, and I don't think this is so common, but it is there, fear. Fear of God. There's one reason why Christians don't go to God and say, I did this ugly, terrible, horrible thing. One reason why they don't, they're afraid. Believers do have a sense and awareness of the wrath of God. And I I know that's true because we're believers and because the Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts and because we read the Bible. But I also know it's true because unbelievers know this. Isn't that what Romans 1 is all about? The whole reason why unbelievers live a life of idolatry and seeking one narcotic after the other to to sort of numb the pain is because they know God's wrath is there and they know it's pouring out. That's why. That's why they're always escaping and running to this uh, and that. And the other thing is because they're aware of the wrath of God. Now surely if unbelievers are that aware of the wrath of God, certainly believers are. And sometimes... Fear causes Christians to not be honest. Fear sometimes causes Christians to hide. And that's one reason why John, in his first letter, chapter 2, talks about Jesus as he does. He calls Jesus an advocate. He begins that chapter by saying... uh, I don't want you to sin, but if anyone does. It's kind of interesting because it's pretty realistic. He knows we're going to sin. He also knows that fear of, of a righteous and holy God is also a problem for believers. It's really hard to go to God and say, you know what, I, I did this, and say how terrible it was. It's hard to do that. It's uncomfortable to do that. John knows that. David knows that. All the apostles know this. We have to just be honest about that this morning. It's hard. How do you do it, though? You go to the Advocate, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. And John says, He is the propitiation for our sins. He is the confidence that we have that God is not going to react at us in anger and strike us down as soon as we get those words of confession of sin out of our mouth. And that's what we all think is going to happen, don't we? We are all afraid to confess and say it, not using euphemisms, but just telling the truth. Because we're afraid God's going to strike us down. So there's fear. One reason why Christians don't confess and enjoy the experience of assurance, of salvation, and of God's grace is because they're afraid. You don't have to be afraid. Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is the righteous one who is the propitiation for our sins. So you can be honest with God. See, the second reason, I told you it would be one of the texts here, and it is, and it's verse 9. Where David, as he's instructing now the church, says, Don't be as the horse 
or as the mule. Why don't we confess sins? Because we're mules. We're stubborn. If you didn't grow up uh, in the country, you may not know what a mule is, and you may not have first experience with how stupid and stubborn mules are. But if you've seen it, you know exactly what David is talking about. You could kick a mule. You could pick up a two-before and crack it over the head. You could... uh, I don't want to say all the bad things you can do a mule, but they'll do nothing. (laughs) Frankly, uh, they'll do nothing. Besides stare at you with a blank look, they will not move until they want to. Terribly stubborn creatures. David says, and it's not... It's not surprising you would say this. He spent plenty of times around mule. Remember, David was a country boy. He grew up on the farm. He knows what mules are like. He said, don't be as a mule. Don't be stubborn. Why don't we confess sin? Because we're willfully stubborn. We enjoy our sins. We don't want to go through the hard work of speaking about our sins to God. David said, don't be like the mule. Don't engage in deception, self-deception like he did. Because David kind of thought, you know, if he could just hide those a little bit longer, God wouldn't do anything about it. Kind of surprising that David would think that somehow he could throw God off of the trail or off of the scent. That somehow God would just forget him eventually. Or God wouldn't see him or God would be unaware of him. Remember, this is the same person who wrote in Psalm 139, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. Surely in the darkness will overwhelm me. Even in the darkness? Even the sins you do when the lights are turned off? Yes! God is there and sees them. David said, don't be a mule. Don't think you can run to the highest point of the universe and sin there and God won't care or God won't see. Don't think that you can run in the remotest part of the desert and sin there and God won't say anything or God won't do anything or God won't see it. Don't think that you can descend to the depths of the sea and do your sin there in private and secret and God won't say anything, God won't do anything, God didn't see anything. He said, don't think you can go do your sins in the dark and God won't see and God won't care and God won't say anything. He'll know. That's what David is saying. You'll know. You can't escape God. Wow, that's pretty profound. I mean, just think about that. This morning, people of God, He knows. David has covered all the places you can go on this earth. He knows God is there. He knows God knows. Why would we deceive ourselves? Well, because David says, we're like mules and we're stubborn. So the last thing we need to ask them this morning, how do we not act like mules? That should be a very important question to all of us here this morning. Because frankly, too often in our Christian life, we are mules. We refuse to admit what the law says about us. And we pretend and we cover our sins. We hide from them, we run from them, close our eyes to them, deceive ourselves about them, pretend they're not there. How do you do this this morning? How do you not be a mule? And how do you confess sin? Honestly, particularly 
and perpetually. What's the key to doing that? First of all, be aware of the promise of forgiveness. Verse 5. He says, I acknowledged, I did not hide, I confessed, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. You know, you must be assured this morning, people of God, that when you deal with sin as openly and as honestly as David commends here in Psalm 32, you must be persuaded that when you deal with sin this way, you will find a forgiving God. You will find a forgiving God. How do I know that? Because Jesus died on the cross. And God then is a forgiving God to all those who seek deliverance in Christ. Secondly, you need to concentrate on the deliverance. Verse 6. Let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. Deliverance. You know, your sins may have gotten you into deep distress. And your refusal to deal with your sin may have gotten you into even deeper distress. Such that there is no humanly possible way for you to get out of that situation on your own. And you feel like there's no way to repair it. All the damage has been done. And the only thing left for you to do is just sort of roll over and die. Well, David said, if you feel that way, I did too. And here's what I did. I I prayed to God while he may be found. And this is what I found out. That surely in a flood of great waters, they won't reach him. The sins will not finally uh, and climactically overwhelm you. That's what David is saying. They may be dangerous. They may be all around you. They may be in the boat. But he says, they will not overwhelm you. Surely, he says that. Surely they won't. There's deliverance for those who seek grace. And finally, he says, you'll find God as a hiding place. Verse 7. He says, you are my hiding place. You preserve me. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Why would God surround you with songs of deliverance? Why would He do that? He would do it because He wants to assure you of His grace to you. He wants to assure you of His grace to you. I don't know of what better thing you could find than a hiding place where there's nothing that can harm you. So you're assured of preservation from every pain, every sorrow, every difficulty, every attack, every distress, every temptation, every trouble, every trial. David says, that's our, that's God. He is our hiding place. And when we get into that hiding place, God just surrounds us with constant reminders of His grace. 
You know, it's too good to be true. That's one reason why it had to be written down. So that we would never forget it. There is an objective testimony to us in the Word of God that this is who God is to us. When we seek His grace in Christ and are honest and open before Him in confessing sin. And the only admonition that is left for us now is the one that David sets forth here in verse 6. Let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. That's the only admonition left for us. Is that now, right now, today, we run to God and we will find Him. Let's pray.